Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. You are tuned to Future Sense here with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. We're talking today um, largely about the coronavirus and uh, various ways and uh, how we can approach and look at uh, this outbreak and uh, what it brings up in the human condition. And one of the things that's very clear is that people, lots of people, are very afraid. And um, as um, as often happens when these kind of extraordinary, uh, exogenous things occur, um, we get we get fearful. But let's have a deeper look at that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I just want to say before we go into this that China has been in a very, very difficult position and it did react rather severely and after it decided to react, it moved very, very quickly to uh, slow down the spread of the virus and try and stop it and, and did, I think, extremely well in that process, including building a rather large hospital very, yeah, very, very quickly. It's <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Just the number of people is a, is a big factor, isn't it, when you have that many people? It is, yeah. Uh, so, and it's, you know, it's very, it's really impossible for us to sit here in judgment of whether that was appropriate or overblown or what, but, but certainly on a global level, there seems to have been a strange sort of um, overemphasized focus on the spread of the, the virus. Mm. Uh, which is not necessarily looking justified the way that things are playing out in other countries. And um, fear, of course, is a major driver really within the first tier of consciousness. So we're talking about the first six layers of value systems which run from our basic sort of hunter-gatherer survival times in history right through to the present day and the emerging sixth layer, which is very human-centered and very network-centered as well. And uh, Ross Hill, who's uh, a name that you've certainly heard on the show before, Ed Ross, we have had Ross on, on as a guest uh, quite a few times. Uh, Ross sent me something over the weekend uh, about the global stock market, and uh, it was a little graph which which basically had a meter that ran between fear on one scale and greed on the other scale, and it, uh, and an indicator needle showing where the, what was driving the stock markets this week. Whether it was fear or greed, or what kind of mixture of the two. I would think they'd be, they need to be two separate graphs because they'd both be pretty extreme most of the time. I would think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, that's you know probably an oversimplification and a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly there's a lot of truth underlying that. You know, fear is a major driver uh, for humans in general and it's only when we make this momentous leap across into the second tier of consciousness beyond layer six into layer seven uh, and past that that we really let go of fear as a major driver in our lives so for most people most times in most places uh, some at least of their behavior is being fear driven and when we're driven by fear, uh, as we've discussed on the show previously, our responses are usually quite hasty, uh, often unbalanced and disproportionate to whatever the, the you know, perceived threat is. And the fear can be really useful, of course, when, if, when we do need to respond very, very quickly and instinctively to something that does pose us a, a serious threat. But it also shuts down our higher order information processing mm. systems in our mind. Mm. 
and uh, it reduces our rational thinking and points us towards that instinctive uh, and instantaneous response, which in sort of past life conditions when we were living in Literally nature, survival, you know, in moment by moment, although arguably we still are, but yeah. We, we are in many ways, <laughs> but uh, you know, we don't often have uh, nasty things jumping out from uh, behind mm. trees that we have to respond to quickly. Most of the time, even when serious threats arrive these days, arise these days in life, you know, we, we usually have some time to consider them as long as we don't get paralysed by fear. So um, when that when we come under the influence of fear, we often don't consider the longer term cause and effects of our actions or our, our potential actions, and also we lose sight of synchronicity. So mm. you know, that's a that's a relatively higher order mm. way of processing information. So what do you mean by that? And that's that's really interesting to me, but for many people maybe that's a bit hard to sort of grasp in the context of fear. What's that? You know, tease that out a bit. Well, um, synchronicity is a term that was coined by Carl Jung, yeah. uh, the, the famous psychologist. And it's really come from layer six and an even sort of later stage, layer six and perhaps early stage uh, second tier thinking. The notion that coincidence is more than coincidence. Yeah, the example. notion that we live in an interconnected web mm. and that we can draw messages from unlikely places mm. you know, that might help us be guided to better decisions or to understand the meaning behind things that happen to us in life mm. and um, I think there's a famous story about Jung where he was dealing with a client and they were having this discussion about uh, life in general and, and sort of fairly deeply philosophical issues and, and I think if I remember rightly there was a, a beetle or something that flew oh, in the yeah. window and landed on the client and you know there was meaning drawn from that mm. yeah. um, and for those people who really haven't explored this area in life and it hasn't been something that's that's you know come to them it can sound very fluffy and sketchy mm. and uh, and like it's sort of just new age fantasy but once you do embrace it and start to look for these things signs of synchronicity then they are a lot uh, more common than most people yeah. realize and it, you know i could even link it from a scientific angle to the holographic theory mm -hmm. of reality where um, if we think about a holographic image when we look at a holographic image from a scientific perspective you can take any piece of that holograph and all of the information required to regener regenerate the entire picture is contained within any small piece mm -hmm. of the hologram uh, and and so we're extending that concept to life in general and Embracing the concept that out of some small occurrence in life, we can possibly unpack larger meaning and mm. larger information, mm. even to the point of quite concrete guidance mm. uh, around actions. Which is related things. then to fractals, isn't it? Also that, uh, that something great can be embedded in something very small and vice versa. Yeah, that the, uh, I guess patterns being self-similar at scale. Yeah. Yeah, in, in that respect for sure. Um, and... From a, a simple sort of a Taoist perspective, um, what fear tends to do is it tends to sort of channel us into a, a quick action. So you, from a, a very sort of basic perspective, you could say that there's too much yang in terms of projecting, acting, and not enough yin energy, which is about opening, receiving mm. the feminine yeah. Uh, more relaxed aspect of remaining open to uh, to receive information. Yeah. 
and it's magical in that sense if you start to focus and experience periods of synchronicity and allow them to inform you in this way and just relax into them and make the meaning that is there for you it doesn't have to be an extremely you know, it's, a, it's a fine balance I find personally between making too much meaning out of something that is synchronous in your reality and making just that little piece of meaning that is valuable in that moment that it may be informing you with right there yeah and a couple of words you used there are, are quite insightful because it's important to think about how we go about learning to work with synchronicity yeah. too and often usually for most people it can be quite confusing when we're first stepping into that world because we're looking for something we're not familiar with mm. we're trying to perceive okay am i am i really understanding this or am i kind of fooling myself yes. you know and you went you mentioned the word magical yeah. and and yeah. for some people that means without basis yeah. <laughs> yes. whereas other for other people it might mean awesome yeah uh, and, and the mysterious, is, the numinous, the extraordinary yeah, things it, that you know that inspire and and, uh, and allow our intuition to flourish and our creativity to flourish. In fact, that's how I see it. Anyway. Exactly, and there is a steep learning curve here mm. when we step into this world of of noticing synchronicity, being open to the possibility that there is something real there and that we can work with it. And uh, in the process of learning how to do that. There is a lot of sort of experimentation and uh, uncertainty around, okay, am, is this really here? Is that reasonable? Am I fantasizing? Mm -hmm. Those sorts of things. And we can only really answer those questions within ourselves mm -hmm. by waiting to see what happens next, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then learning, okay, well, I thought that was that, but actually mm -hmm. it didn't happen that way. So maybe I didn't interpret that correctly. Mm -hmm. And then refining our own process of observation, uh, you know, mm -hmm. perceiving what's, what might be there and then how we actually apply that and integrate it into so you don't life. surrender the logical mind completely you allow the uh, the other side of the brain to access this information to, to feed you to give you that and then the logical mind will appraise that as time goes on in the way that you're talking about perhaps yeah it's it, the, the logical mind needs to be there as a fallback and yeah. if we think about the three fundamental zones of human development mm. we start out in the pre-rational zone which is not rational where we're responding to instincts urgence very much in the moment uh, and uh, very much also driven by emotions and then we we grow into the rational zone and this is not to say that we're not rational in the pre-rational zone we have access to rational processes there it's just that they're not dominant mm -hmm. you know when it comes to the crunch emotions or instincts take over take a teenager for example exactly and then in the rational zone the rational mind does become dom dominant so we might feel the urges and instincts and emotions but then the rational mind steps in and say ah yes but you know it's probably better to do this uh, and then when we're growing beyond that into the transrational which is a place where synchronicity really does feature and also deep intuition and it's not rational uh, in that crossover between growing from rational to transrational often we will mistake pre-rational things for transrational things and that's part of the learning process mm -hmm. so we might get a feeling and we're not sure if that feeling is actually our intuition or whether it's just a fear popping up and and again it's only really through uh, mindfulness and observation and waiting to see what happens next that we can learn how to discern between those things mm. and yeah. of course it will be always affected to one degree or another by an individual's psychology and how that's interplaying with the experience of life that you're having in the moment and to tease that out whether this is just a reaction so to speak from my psychology or this is actually something that's independent from that that has some other value and meaning to me in this in this moment yeah and and what we're saying here is really only relevant to people
people who are transiting through layer six and mm. in the process of making that transition to mm. second tier consciousness for people who are centered in other value systems like the sort of mainstream scientific industrial etc it, it really is it's something uh that will be relevant to them in the future perhaps yeah yeah so just a, just a question on the transrational because yeah. that's a, that's a, it's a word for many people that may not be easily understood uh, how does the logical brain uh, situate within a transrational reality for somebody well, it's important to uh, remember that these things are nested inside each other so the pre-rational has the rational laid over the top and then the transrational gets laid over the top of that so the other ones don't go away mm. we still have access to them all and then it becomes a matter once we're sort of capable of transrational operation a matter of going with the flow and naturally allowing ourselves to shift between all of those different ways of perceiving and processing uh, and um, using whatever's appropriate in the moment yes so that's the key is using whatever's appropriate in the moment yeah and it's a very dynamic thing it's not that we throw one away and adopt the next one it doesn't work that way it really is a nested mm. arrangement yeah um, and ultimately the research shows us that the most complex problems that humanity has to face are best addressed from the most sophisticated operating process and that most sophisticated operating process as far as we know is that integration of transrational rational and pre-rational mm. and using those at appropriate times mm. yeah very good so just back to the fear thing to to wind yep. that up uh all of those implications of operating under the control of fear um, mean that often if we have to respond to a very significant issue that has long-term impacts we the actions we take when we're driven by fear actually create further problems uh, that only compound with the original one and so um, you know we are not doing ourselves a service when we're allowing fear to control us under those circumstances and uh, we can't sort of sit here in judgment and say well China should have done this or they should have done that because we simply don't have enough information at the moment what, what we can do though is we can look at things like the stock market response uh, which is often driven by fear because that's the way stock markets work uh, and say okay well um, we're actually you know we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice by reacting uh, so emotionally to possibilities that haven't played out yet mm. and uh, we would be better served at both an individual and a collective level if we could show some restraint and really go with confirmed facts and uh, and put ourselves in a situation where we can respond quickly if we need to but not jump the gun so to speak yeah. uh, and of course the media plays an enormous role in this process and as we said at the beginning of the show you know imagine if they were reporting standard influenza statistics the way that they're reporting coronavirus statistics at the moment it would sound way way more scary yeah because of the, the higher rate of deaths and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, a lot to think about there. Well, I suppose just to bring vaccines into this, there are always vaccines for the current flu season, so I guess people feel safer because there is a vaccine if you want to take a vaccine, but there is no vaccine so far for the coronavirus. So I guess that's a small element in that uh, that equation there. It, it is true, yeah. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, for most of the world, the level of risk at this moment yep. is very low. Yeah. yeah. Yes, Okay. Mm. So, um, I know you've got uh, some potentially good developments that have come out of the mm. coronavirus issue there. Do you want to take a short break and come back? We'll take those? a short break and come back. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans.
you're tuned to Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. And we've been talking about the coronavirus and fear and more and synchronicity. And thanks for your text, Dudley. Excellent explanation. He says, re-fear and synchronicity. Well said and very relevant to present times indeed. Thank you for that. Um, yes, we were talking a little bit about um, a website, exponentialview.co, which I kind of uh, I, I do appreciate a lot of uh, his um, his uh, reporting. And he uh, he looks at some of the ways that the coronavirus may change our world. Now, these are not necessarily positive uh, things, but they are things that seem to be emerging as we go forward with this particular crisis on the planet. Um, and uh, we're going to go through some of these now. The first one is to reinforce the power of scientific collaboration and the open sourcing of global threats. And that's an interesting one. Chinese researchers sequenced the uh, coronavirus days following the outbreak. This is pretty unusual. Preliminary genome data was available online, although they haven't yet uh, shared physical samples of the virus. And I thought I'd just play a little bit of this here. This is actually the sequence um, spoken uh, because the sequence is it's a massive, tiny bundle of protein, the troublesome 120-nanometer diameter spiky virus in its shell, is a wound-up pair of DNA strands carrying just eight kilobytes of genetic code. That's not very much. And it sounds like this if it's read out. It's a little bit of this. No wonder it's causing trouble, Nick. Had to play a bit of that. It's kind of crazy. There you go. Three to track flu symptoms as reported by individuals. Flu near you started in the US in 2011. And Lauren Gardner, a civil engineering professor, Johns Hopkins and the co-director of the Centre for Systems Science and Engineering led the launch of a real-time map of the spread of the 2019 coronavirus. So what they're saying here, of course, is the collaboration and the open sourcing is becoming uh, better and better on the planet and this is encouraging this as we go forward. And that's a clear part of the trend in the value shift from the scientific industrial way, which is all about restricting mm. information for your own power to the, the Layer 6 approach, which is very much net work centric and about sharing and open sourcing mm. a group of online archivists have created an open access directory of 5,000 plus scientific studies about coronavirus that anyone can access for free it's illegal but it's also a moral imperative that's good interesting contrast a large number of critical ebola research was inaccessible during the outbreak and even today downloading a single paper could cost 45 dollars the steep price for a healthcare worker in liberia for example I think there's a bit of that going on around the world at the moment. It's illegal, but it's a moral imperative. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, and that's part of the breakdown of the restructuring of systems, isn't it? Well, it is. This is necessary. We actually have to go up against the, the, the regulations and uh, the restrictions and uh, and face them down a little bit to, to make change. Make yeah, it's change. No normal during a, a transition like this, yeah. Mm. Um, number two on this list is, and there's other points here, you can go to this uh, this article yourself if you like, an exponentialview.co. Digital quarantines through better information and social credit systems are also emerging. Uh, the Chinese authorities, again, the Chinese, of course, are using computerized systems that track IDs. We talked about this thing last week or the week before to round up people from Wuhan and separate them from others. Although across the country, the response from local authorities often resembles the mass mobilizations of the Mao era rather than the techno data-driven wizardry depicted in propaganda about China's emerging surveillance state. There's also, they've also turned to techniques Beijing used to fight the outbreak of SARS uh, in 2002 and 2003 when China was much less technologically sophisticated. Um, 
Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think we can draw from that that there's been an awful lot of criticism of government surveillance, but, I mean, this is one example yeah. where it's actually been helpful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's right. I mean, as we often say on this show in regards to very many issues, it's very rarely black or white. Things that's right. Are and much it, more complex. And it, it's usually, it's not the technology or the, you know, the particular process that's good or bad. It's what human values were, are applied to the deployment of it. Yeah. Mm. One of their readers uh, recently briefed uh, them on social credit in China and uh, says that he thinks that the 2019 NCOV might catalyse discussions with the Chinese Communist Party about how digital IDs could be used to manage ec- epidemics in the future. And again, it's a contestable point. I mean, how many people actually want to be ID'd in this way? Yeah. Even if it's going to enhance your safety with regard to these kind of um, outbreaks. Um, number three on this list, to uh, reinforce the importance of genomic technologies. And I've referred to this already, but during the SARS outbreak, it took scientists about five months, I didn't know that, to sequence the virus. Uh, it was done by the US and Canadian scientists at that time, and it took the Chinese, as I said, just one month to sequence uh, this virus. And of course, the cost of genomic uh, sequencing has declined faster than Moore's Law, which is, um, you can look that up. So that's uh, that's a big change. And um, it's also the case that uh, frontline testing from swab samples is still rare and expensive. A real-time reverse transcription PCR test costs close to uh, $100 and $10, making it a costly undertaking. We said before that we were informed, apparently, that it costs up to $3,000 for these sort of tests in the US. I would dispute that. We'd have to look that up. Could be a profit margin in there, perhaps. (laughs) You think? (laughs) Maybe. And number four on this is remote everything. And, of course, we, we've been talking a lot about this during the show over the couple of years we've been here about uh, about the relocalization generally. But um, there's a couple of examples here. Tencent, a business, announced in China that they are pushing the date to return to offices until the end of February. That's already happened. But everyone will now work from home. Tsinghua University is starting on its original schedule but online. But beyond work, we're seeing it with gyms, trainers, live streaming classes you can join from home. I think uh, we'll see a lot more playful use cases emerge, especially with the live streaming culture already established. Work from home is very much not part of the mainstream culture in China, but uh, hoping that 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 actually happens. And of course, it's happening very much in our developed countries uh, more and more. And that idea that you don't have to travel to do what you do, generally speaking, is emerging quite strongly on the planet. And this seems to be stimulating that, uh, that direction. Definitely, it's certainly helpful that we have this technology right now mm. when people are being confined to their homes. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd probably see what, what else would people do? Probably there'd be a population boom, perhaps. <laughs> oh, that's going to go counter to, uh, to some ideas about what's going on. Exactly. Um, there's also things like a contactless food delivery where your takeaway is left at a designated area. KFC and Pizza Hut are offering the same service. China's largest classified site, 58.com, and real estate platform, Anduke, offered limited-time virtual reality and live streaming services to allow buyers to select a house without ever visiting in person. That'd be hard, I think, wouldn't it? That'd be hard to, to ascertain without walking around a space and feeling the atmosphere. Yeah. And I think I'd aspect. wait till after the quarantine was over so and go sure. the house out to be Absolutely. And uh, more relevant, I think, to the things that we'd like to talk about, number five on this list of potential global changes that are occurring via or accelerating via this virus, uh, the encouragement into self-sufficiency, especially around food, energy and products. 
and we talked about uh, supply chains earlier, but global supply chains are going to notice that Chinese factories are not filling them up. The vulnerability to this single point of failure will become increasingly apparent. Our globalized offshore manufacturing is looking like the anti-internet interconnected yet yet dependent on a large super node rather than networked, decentralized and resilient. How's this going to work though with companies like Amazon, which is the biggest, uh, it's about the biggest company in the world and similar things. It's fascinating really. In terms of distribution. Yeah. Uh, Look, I I think the main things around that relocalization and supply chains relate to the possibility of producing things locally uh, and not having to pay for the cost of, you know, remote factories and supply chains through things like uh, automation, robotics, 3D printing and those sorts of things. Mm. And as he continues here, vertical farming could allow some kind of food sustainability at a community or city level. And we're certainly seeing a lot of that in this region, which is fantastic. And there's some great technology coming out too, like computerised farming devices where, you know, it will plant use cameras to monitor plants uh, and the images are used to discern what fertilizer is required, how much water is required, all that sort of stuff. So there's some incredible technology coming out now. And thus also local manufacturing along those same lines will be increasingly important given the specialist nature of products. There won't be an iPhone factory in every city. And as we're saying here, uh, rather 3D printing is increasingly coming of age. I saw recently some houses that were printed uh, out of, literally printed out of hempcrete him concrete that was fantastic it looked fabulous awesome. yeah. um, and lastly number six here which is which is a, a tricky one to coronavirus um, uh, gives every reason to build digital walls to close borders isolate particular groups stigmatize certain behaviors and fuel distrust against groups identified as other there's a difficult area here mm-hmm. it is and it relates back to which value system mm-hmm. is dominant uh, you know, in terms of addressing the problems, and we might, if we get time before the end of this show, we might just quickly skip through the first six value systems in Graves' model and just talk about their problem-solving approaches in this kind of context. Mm. And and there's a lot more. And if you'd like to join the conversation, zero four three seven three four triple one nine. We have a couple of other texts. So I'll come to those in a little while. Um, but that's about it. So there's there's a number of things there, but particularly the relocalization is fascinating. And uh, so it's this is clearly a region here. And as we're talking about Graves's model, which is significantly merge, m- moving into uh, into green, into layer six, and we're seeing because of that uh, this real focus on on growing your own food, on looking after energy uh, in, uh, close to home, individually, possibly trading energy, trading food, trading other goods and services. A lot of uh, some of the Facebook groups. Uh, um, locally are really great in terms of giving and receiving items and recycling thus um, things that one might, might, might need or not need anymore. So there's really a, a great movement here. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate and spiral up. It's 10.43 here, coming to the end of today's Future Sense show, which you can listen to again if you missed it on uh, the Bay FM website in full with music and everything else, or wait for our podcast, which will be up within 24 hours at futuresense.it or through your platforms. We're going to just look through the first-tier value systems now and look at their particular approaches to problem-solving and how they might be applied in the, in this kind of context where we've got a large-scale, global-scale mm. Uh, issue to address and uh, lots of issues and obstacles standing in our way around how we do that 
And just before that, I just wanted to mention that uh, those of you who listen to us regularly will remember that over the last year, probably about a year and a half uh, almost, we've been talking about an economic turning point, yeah. which was scheduled for January, the 18th of January, actually. And it, it's part of a an algorithm or computer-based model that belongs to Armstrong Economics, uh, the brainchild of Martin Armstrong. Uh, that is put together over many, many years and through incredible historical research and observations of uh, trends, particularly in financial markets. But mm. also he's gone to the point of looking at how empires have risen and fallen and uh, their relationship to trading and uh, economic issues such mm. as the issue of currency and all those sorts of things. And and over time he noticed that the, the computer algorithm that he put together also coordinated with things like solar cycles yeah. which of course impact weather on the planet and impact human activity uh, and so we've had uh, although you know nothing too specific but we've had a message coming from his predictive system for quite some time a couple of years he's been talking about this particular turning point uh, which has potentially given us a heads up that there was going to be some kind of economic hard landing at this time this year so um, I, I guess uh, I would commend his work. It's not perfect like, like any kind of system. It has its, uh, its sort of um, potential use and, and also some potential downfalls. But well, So uh, many variables uh, in this kind of thing, isn't there? Yeah, but, but certainly it's been useful for us to know that there was going to be some kind of economic hiccup at this time and uh, we didn't know how it was going to play out. We certainly didn't know that it was going to be uh, to some extent driven by the outbreak of this coronavirus, but it, it was predictable that there was going to be some kind of issue around now. Mm. Uh, let's talk about value systems which give rise to worldviews, uh, which of course uh, that, that term worldview is used to explain how people make sense of the world, how they see the world and whether they see the world as uh, something to be taken advantage of or some big scary thing or some wonderful magical place really comes back down to their value systems which relate at a deeper level uh, to their, the layer of consciousness which is dominant. Uh, and helps them make sense of reality. So I'm going to go through initially the first tier and then we'll talk briefly about second tier just to finish the show. Uh, at layer one in Graves' system, which is basic hunter-gatherer survival type behavior, we respond to problems with reference to uh, immediate survival implications. So we tend to act in the moment fairly quickly, uh, but we also can develop practices over time to help us stay safe. Uh, and I guess you might call them good habits. Mm. And the focus at layer one is relatively short term and on an individual level. And then each of these systems, of course, leans either towards individual uh, considerations or communal considerations. And so the next system, layer two, is uh, all about com communal approaches. And being a communal system, it's all about conforming in some way and uh, working together with people in conformity. So at that layer, we can expect us to be addressing problems with reference to uh, ways of protecting us all, mm. and particularly at small scale like family or tribe scale and then perpetuating those practices uh, those ways of conforming that help us out through storytelling and the stories tend to be yes. like parables you know and, and we yeah. see this of course in indigenous mm. uh, 
practices where we've got these stories in some cases which has been told for tens of thousands of years yeah. uh, telling the same stories over and over again in in, uh, in order to benefit our tribe and to perpetuate, yeah, perpetuate. our way of living yeah, yeah. yes and then layer three leans back towards the individual focus again. It tends to be very self-serving and short-term in its thinking, uh, layer three, uh, and very much power-driven. So mm. it sees everything as some kind of power struggle or uh, a, the need to express power you yeah. know, is, is the primary way, uh, active way of addressing problems. So often there'll be a very quick response. It, it'll be a very high energy response and often without a lot of consideration of long-term implications. Uh, but sometimes that can be really useful to act fast, act quickly and be very, very proactive. Mm. Layer four leans back towards the communal side of things again. Uh, so it's conformity-based, and at Layer 4, we're talking about the authoritarian way of living, which uh, was prominent during the agricultural era and is still around, remembering that all of these things, they don't disappear. They simply uh, move from being dominant to be, being less dominant, but usually still present within society. So in a, in a Layer 4 problem-solving approach, people who operate through this value system are generally very willing to sacrifice their personal needs in order to comply with whatever a higher authority is asking and also to serve the greater good. So that's really the, mm -hmm. the ultimate sort of purpose that's put forward under that layer four system. And we can really see how this has played out in the Chinese response, yes, yeah. where people have been so willing to do what they're told uh, for the greater good and to obey the government there and stay home and isolate themselves and those sorts of things. Because you have to wonder just on the Chinese, and we've talked about this I think before too, that there's, there's probably a lot of the population who are not as happy to surrender to that because they are also emerging themselves into a different of paradigm. Of course, of yeah. course. And every society, you know, there's no society that is... is just uh, one thing necessarily mm. just one value system yeah. usually you get a mixture of value systems mm. and that's you know part of that process is that human development requires us to grow through value systems mm. so there are always people who are still growing up to whatever the dominant system might be uh, driven by the complexity of life conditions of course and are always some people who kind of poke ahead of the mainstream and are, are moving into different value systems uh, as a minority of the society um, so in layer four, uh, things are always reduced to a black and white, yes or no choice. So it's either do the right thing, don't do the wrong thing. Usually that's, that's how it plays out. Uh, and it's being a communal system, it thinks long term. So it's very uh, mindful of long term implications. Layer five, which is the dominant value system across much of Western society, so we're talking about the modern mindset here, the scientific industrial approach to life, tends to be very strategic. So it'll consider all of the things that we've discussed so far from the other value systems, but it's not just looking to protect itself or its interests, it's also looking to take advantage of the situation. It always looks for some way of exploiting the situation. How can we, how can we not only deal with this, but actually make money out of it yeah. or benefit ourselves somehow? Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I'm reminded of one of the comments that we mentioned on an earlier show about the US politician who came out and said, well, this is great for US trade, yeah. China's trade exactly. yeah. shut down. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, probably not too much long-term thinking here. And this, again, being an individually oriented system, it tends to think relatively short-term. I mean, it's it's not as short-term as layer three, but if you look in, in the corporate world, you know, it's rare to find a business plan that looks out further than sort of three to five years maximum. Uh, and often people are just thinking about the short-term wins rather than the longer-term game yeah, under this value system. And 
just to give an example of not only solving uh, or, or keeping oneself safe, but also benefiting from the way that we act in a strategic way, I just want to tell a really quick little story here about uh, this is this is based on a true story, and it was a, a story that was often told when I was in the military, and it's about a soldier who's a candidate for selection to a special forces unit and he's going through the selection process and in the selection process of course they pose all sorts of problems for people to solve and they watch how people deal with the problems and that's part of how they select the candidates for special forces and so this guy was chained to a railway line and it was a pretty short chain uh, so he was fairly close to the track and uh, they'd set this up on a on a piece of track a, a real piece of railway track where there was a, a switch or a uh, you know a, a mechanism to divert the train onto a nearby track very close to where this guy was but he was blindfolded of course and so he couldn't see what was happening all he knew was probably from uh, noise and feeling what was going on he could feel the railway track he could obviously feel that he was chained and the chain was connected to the railway track and then they had a, a, a carriage which they moved along the railway track nearby and so he could hear the noise of the train approaching and probably the vibration through the, the track and mm-hmm. the ground of this big thing rumbling down the track and of course not knowing that there was a diversion nearby and so thinking that okay this is probably going to perhaps uh, come very close to me and maybe injure me you know so he's got to think about his personal protection but then if he's capable of layer five or higher operation he'll also think about how he can take advantage of the situation and in this true story what this person did was he got the the chain that he was uh, attached to the track by and he just draped it over one of the railway tracks so that as the train came past it would cut the chain and release him from that situation so that's a a really good example of how layer five thinks not just to solve a problem but also how can we take advantage of this as well and then Layer six. Then he sold two pieces of the chain on uh, eBay after the, after that. <laughs> told, right. told his story. I think it would be a collector's item. Actually, yeah, right. you could probably sell it for, for benefit. That would be another layer five approach. Um, layer six. Uh, some of the trends that we know we're seeing, and of course, are sort of coded into the way layer six operates, are starting to appear in the response and the thinking around coronavirus and some of these trends are as we've heard today relocalization Mm. and the relocalization one of the key drivers of that is of course just the the natural way that people who are operating through layer six are drawn to human bonding and they want to be close to their immediate network they want to know who they're dealing with they want to know that they're they they have trusted sources for supply and those sorts of things and and uh, also you know, part of the driver there is when you know those things, you can have a more resilient community, you know, when you're not relying on somebody that you don't know, that you mm. perhaps don't know whether you can mm. trust to be sending your supplies from a long distance. Mm. And so yes. relocalisation is a definite trend and we're seeing that play out now and that's to be expected. Uh, trusted known networks. Also a return to nature and natural ways of doing things. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess we are seeing that in terms of people considering natural remedies and treatments mm. potentially uh, ways of looking after themselves uh, in the face of a virus threat and also uh, there's been a lot of talk and consideration about the circumstances at least you know one of the most likely and, and uh, most accepted scenario for the rise of this viral outbreak was a wet market <laughs> where um, strange know, animals are all there for food in uh, very unhealthy environments. Uh, unhealthy conditions yeah. and of course yeah. from a layer six perspective that would be unacceptable yeah. ethically uh, you know for, for many reasons yeah. so again uh, a layer six approach would be to deal with that 
and the circumstances around the, the probable outbreak of the virus itself and the spread of it. And also layer six thinks about uh, security and in, in all of the various applications of that term, not just sort of physical security, but security of sort of uh, health and security of supply and all, sorts of, all, all those sorts of things. And also the minimization of corruption and mm. undesirable human impacts. And so uh, things that are arising from those motivators are the automation of technological systems. And I'm thinking particularly of things like blockchain, which have been designed not only to make better and more responsive systems, but also to uh, cut out the risk of human corruption. Yes, they have. And uh, just quickly, a text referring to some of this too from Dudley, science, if science and technology is created with an ethical foundation, this world would overcome the danger of its of its uh, misuse, etc. So yeah. that's, what, that's what's happening here. Exactly. So that's a strong layer six trend. And, yeah. all, and another example of that is, is the use of automation in industry where uh, we are taking people away from having to act like robots in jobs and yeah. replacing them with actual robots, yes. for example. Yeah. yeah. And finally, just to wind up, yeah. uh, a very quick look at how layer seven from second tier uh, would approach the problem solving issue in this context and one of the characteristics of layer seven's problem solving is advanced pattern recognition and we're talking now about particularly complex combinations of patterns where layer seven is able to scan uh, large scale look at multiple systems operating and see patterns in the interaction and overlap of those systems and then look for possibilities of leverage by impacting just one small thing which would impact a whole uh, array of systems that are influencing each other. Also considering multi-dimensional information gathering from sources that wouldn't be considered by first-tier mindsets uh, and then the tailoring of solutions to appeal to particular value systems of particular groups of people in particular places. So no blanket solutions but tailored, very, very carefully considered tailored solutions that take into account the motivations of people according to which value system they live by. Very good. I have to leave it there. Uh, thanks for the last text. A couple of we can't get to. Pathological selfishness due to hyper-individualism seems to be the evolutionary sticking point for us now. We need to cultivate community consciousness that sincerely seeks resolution and solutions as never before. Like that? That's very good. Thank you. And Thank you. Uh, we'll be with you. Well, you won't be here. Well, you're away for a month. I, yeah, actually, this is, this is my last time in the studio for the next month or so. So yeah. I'm, I'm traveling to the US and then Europe, and uh, I'll do my best to do some remote reporting while we'll I'm away. We'll be doing it. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.